You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. This year marks the 10 year anniversary of Grace Mosaic. Yeah, we praise God for that. The Lord is great, and He has done great things in our midst. And this year, we're going to celebrate this major milestone for our congregational life. But this 10-year anniversary is also an important opportunity for us to take up sober reflection and to reorient ourselves. Church scholars and practitioners have identified patterns in the life cycle of churches that we would do well to consider. Each church starts with a man or a woman, and a mission, a vision to bring the gospel to particular people or places where there is no such presence or no effective presence. As people join in the mission, that mission then becomes a movement in which people are participating. It has now gone beyond the man or the woman, and the mission has now gotten a hold of a group of people, it starts to become a movement that is alive and dynamic and fruitful. And it's at this stage that the mission blossoms and is most fully expressed. But it's also at this stage in which churches are most vulnerable. Because without sustained focus on the mission and faithful communal practice, a movement becomes a machine, a machine in which bureaucracy, structures, and the professionalization of ministry all work together to suck the life out of the movement. Ministry is no longer the work of the community, it's now for the paid professionals. The people are no longer participants, but parts of a machine that is well-oiled, but moving farther away from the mission with which it began. And if it's an organizationally effective machine that's well-funded, well, over time, the machine becomes a monument, an institutional spectacle that turns people's attention to the grandeur of the machine itself rather than beyond the machine to the Lord. Monuments are more oriented to past achievements than present calling. Eventually, if missional focus is not recovered, then the monument becomes a morgue. It's dead. It's no longer alive. It's just biding its time until it can no longer exist. It dies out. It's not bringing any new people in because it's not caring about neighbors, it's not ministering to the neighborhood, it has completely lost its saltiness, in the words of Jesus. But here's the thing, this life cycle does not have to be inevitable. By anchoring our hearts and our practices in the mission of God and embracing our place in his mission, we can maintain a vital and dynamic gospel movement that nourishes and deploys generations to come. We often say that we want Grace Mosaic to outlive us. 
I want my grandchildren and my grandchildren's children to be celebrating anniversaries of this church if God calls them to this place. So today we're going to begin a new series titled From the Church to the World in which we work through the book of Acts to deepen our understanding of mission and to deepen our commitment to this life of mission. So we begin our series in Acts chapter 1, and we're going to approach this text through two points in which we consider the ground of mission and the work of mission. The ground of mission and the work of mission. So let's take a look at our first point, the ground of mission. If you look at the very first verse of chapter 1, it reads like this. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now, if you're not familiar, the book of Acts is the second volume of a two-volume work that Luke, the writer of the Gospel of Luke, wrote to a person named Theophilus. Theophileo, which means lover of God. And it's thought that Theophilus was a high-ranking Roman official, and Luke is trying to write to bolster the faith of Theophilus, but also to give Theophilus resources for making a case for the Christian faith in the Roman Empire. Luke acts is really one work, but because it would be so, too long to fit on one scroll, it's broken up into two books. But this is meant to set our expectations for what is coming in the book of Acts. Because it's one developing story. And when we look at what Luke says in this very first verse, it gives us a clue. Did you notice what he said? He said, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. The implication is that the book of Acts is going to be his telling of all that Jesus continues to do and teach through his church. Note the all-important distinction that Luke is drawing between his two volumes. It's not between the life of Christ and the church of Christ. Rather, the distinction between the two volumes captures the earthly ministry of Christ and the heavenly ministry of Christ that he conducts, he exercises through the Spirit by the apostolic leadership of the church. What we have are two distinct stages in the one ministry of the one Christ. I like how pastor theologian John Stott put it in his commentary on the book of Acts. He says this, Luke's two verses are extremely significant. It is no exaggeration to say that they set Christianity apart from all other religions. These other religions regard their founder as having completed his ministry during his lifetime. But Luke says Jesus only began his during his lifetime. This, then, is the kind of Jesus Christ we believe in. He is both the historical Jesus who lived and the contemporary Jesus who lives. The Jesus of history began his ministry on earth. The Christ of glory has been active through his spirit ever since. Come on, John Stott. Wait, do you see? What Luke makes absolutely crystal clear 
is that Jesus doesn't just live on in the memory of his followers, like when you lose a loved one and they, you're told they'll be with you. That is not the conception that we are given from the text. It's, look at the claim, verse 3, take a look. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Many proofs. Polois tekmerios. In the Greek lexicon that gives you the meaning of these particular Greek words, many proofs. Tekmerios means this, the proofs. That which causes something to be known in a convincing and decisive manner. Demonstrative proof. According to Luke, everything that the apostles and the church does from this point is because they received decisive, convincing, demonstrative proof that Jesus lives. Why were they willing to give up everything to follow Jesus? Because he lives. Why were they willing to boldly confront the powers of their day and to resist the empire? Because he lives. Why were they willing to be imprisoned and beaten to make the gospel known? Because he lives. Why were they eager to radically love one another and willing to transgress cultural barriers? Because he lives. Why were they willing to sacrificially love their neighbors and even their enemies? Because he lives. Why were they joyful in trials and faithful in suffering? Because he lives. This was the center of their hope as Christians. This was not baseless well-wishing or just baseless optimism but certainty of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And here's the thing. Nothing short of the empirically verified resurrection of Jesus Christ can adequately explain the growth of the church through the rest of the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament. Nothing else can account for it. In the beginning of his gospel, Luke, in chapter 1, verse 3, says this. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Have you ever thought of your faith in this way? Do you know that's exactly what the New Testament writers, when they talk about hope, this is what they mean. They are so assured based upon the certainty of the resurrection, they beheld him. He presented himself with convincing proofs. And Luke wants us to have certainty concerning the things we've been taught. And it's this risen Jesus who calls us to follow him. Eminent New Testament scholar N.T. Wright puts it like this, and I quote, Christ's resurrection doesn't mean escaping from the world. It means mission to the world based on Jesus' lordship over the world. And missiologist David Bosch says this, for the disciples of Jesus, 
the Easter experience was pivotal. They interpreted the cross as the end of the old world and the resurrection of Jesus as the eruption of the new, the inbreaking of the new. The disciples, do you see it? The disciples saw themselves as participants in this new world that has dawned in light of the resurrection. So here's the deal. We look at them. That's great. This is why they did it. But here's the question. Why should you respond to Jesus in loving obedience? Because he lives. Why should you live a life of committed love and faithfulness to neighbors and spouses? Because he lives. Why should you make the effort to form our children in the love of Christ? Because he lives. Why should you give your resources generously and sacrificially? Because he lives. Why should you pursue doxological diversity? Because he lives. The foundational, immovable, irrefutable truth of the Christian faith is that he presented himself alive to them. We are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. This is why we constantly reference our contemporary faith to the ancient and historic faith that has been delivered over to the saints once and for all, as Paul puts it. Now, it's at this point that we have to address some modern skepticism here, okay? A lot of people think, yeah, but the ancients were more gullible. They were more likely to believe something like this. But now, on this side of the Enlightenment, we know better. Here's the thing. I understand that thinking. It simply does not square with the historical record. And Luke even tells us at the end of his gospel, in chapter 24, this is how he reports it. There are some women who were followers of Jesus. After he's crucified, they go to bring spices to basically take care of his body, okay? And when they get to the tomb, it's, it's empty. But then all of a sudden, an angel appears, and then all of a sudden, Jesus appears. And Mary, and she's like, Rabbi, Rabboni. And then she takes off. And she goes, the women run back to report what they have seen. They have seen Jesus risen from the grave. And this is what Luke tells us in chapter 24, verses 10 through 11. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. Here it is. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Do you see what can explain the transformation and these disciples who were not inclined to believe that people rise from the dead? They were not expecting it. It was no more likely to them than it is to us. But all of a sudden, not long after that, these same people are submitting to the abuse of the authorities for proclaiming this name for preaching this gospel, for telling people that Jesus is alive and that he is the Messiah of Israel and the king of the whole cosmos. What can explain it? 
except the fact that they actually saw him raised from the dead. And even Thomas, who said, I will never believe this foolishness unless I can put my finger in his side and in his hands. And Jesus is like, what's up, Thomas? And he's like, my Lord and my God. Even Thomas, the skeptic, gets from Jesus what he needs to follow this mission. This was not a bunch of people who were just waiting and ready to accept this very difficult message. No, they were thinkers as well. They wanted evidence as well. And Jesus gives them that evidence. He presented himself alive with many convincing proofs. The only historically reliable explanation for what unfolds in the rest of this book and in the rest of church history is that Jesus actually did rise from the dead. And in rising from the dead, he is vindicated. Everything that he taught, everything that he claimed, everything that he projected for the future is true. That's the implication. They beheld a living Christ and expressed a living faith. This is the ground of mission. But we need to consider the work of mission. That brings us to our second point, the work of mission. Now, in our passage, Jesus is engaging with his disciples, and he's giving them his final words. They, they, they don't realize it yet, but he's giving them his final words. And before he gets to his final words, they ask a question. The fact that they see Jesus raised from the dead confirming that he is Israel's Messiah. Remember, these are Jewish disciples with Jewish expectations. They expected a resurrection at the end of history, but now here is the risen one before them. So now that means that the future has already broken into the present. And so they're asking, like, is now the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus' answer is yes and no. Yes and no. He, Jesus wants them to reimagine the kingdom. Their view of the kingdom was, the, the scope of their view of the kingdom was not broad enough yet. And so he wants to expand their imagination. And he doesn't give them a timetable. He gives them a calling to be witnesses. Notice something significant here. In verse 8, Jesus says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. He could have said, and you will do the work of witness. He could have focused on the doing, but I want you to notice the detail that Jesus focuses on being. This is who you are. Who you are governs what you do. A lot of people are always dealing with the doing question, and they haven't settled the being question. What do I do in my life and in my work? What do I do with my kids? What do I do in my marriage? That's not the question at first. The first question is, who are you? And the answer that Jesus gives to his disciples is, you are witnesses. You are witnesses. This leads to a crucial paradigm that I want you all to lay hold of. There are going to be lots of these that I try to drop for you throughout this series about mission. It's a massive 
category that has been deeply thought out by lots of scholars and practitioners in the church, global and historic. And I want to try and bring some of those insights to bear for our community. Check out this paradigm. Mission is not merely an activity of the church. It is an identity for the church. Missiologist David Bosch puts it this way, and I quote, the entire Christian existence is to be characterized as missionary existence, end quote. Listen, the church is not a building that you go to. The church is not a service that you attend. The church is not a charity that you support. The church is not a club in which you socialize. The church is the beloved missionary community of God sent into the world for its redemption. That is who we are. We are sent, whether we realize it or not, whether we like it or not. When we become Christians, we become witnesses. Remember, think of witness as someone who has experienced something, who has seen something, and can testify to what they have seen and heard. Later on, the apostles are going to be called to stop preaching. And they say, well, you judge whether it's right to listen to God or to man, but as for us, we can't help speaking about what we have seen and heard. That's witness. What have you seen God do? What have you heard of his greatness, of his work, of his faithfulness? This is part of the reason why community is so important. Connection to one another. Because this is where we get more and more evidence for bearing witness. When we become Christians, we become witnesses. The question is whether we will be faithful witnesses or false witnesses. You see, you can be a false witness not, not just by reporting untruths about God, but by failing to speak in his name. Because you're always bearing witness to someone or something. Just like everybody is a worshiper. The question is, what do you worship? In a similar way, everybody's a witness. The question is, what's your good news? Is it the good news that if you get into the right school and you get the right job and you get the right spouse and you have the right kids and you have the right dog and you get the right retirement, then, then you'll really have the good life. Is that your good news? That's a delusion. It's a lie. It's the good news that you are really, your life is really just about self-actualization. Getting out what is in your heart and expressing all that without anyone kind of constraining you. Is that your good news? You'll kill yourself. You'll kill yourself. We've said it before. That is the story of self-belonging. The story of Christians is that I am not my own. I've been bought with a price. This is who we are. We are witnesses. The question, do you know who you are, Christian? Do you? Consider how Luke is framing the big picture here. In his gospel, this is also another profound theological paradigm for understanding mission, okay? <coughs> Excuse me. In his gospel, Luke frames the big picture up for us, okay? 
in his gospel, Luke reveals that Jesus was sent by the Father. Okay? In Acts, we learn that the Spirit is sent by the Father and the Son. And then the church is sent by the triune God. Do you see it? A sent Savior creates a sent people to continue his ministry. But what does it mean to continue the ministry of Jesus? You don't need to try and make up in your mind or, or, or develop in your mind what, what that should be or what that should look like. Luke has already done that for you. And you know where he did it? In the, the thesis statement of the life and ministry of Jesus in Luke 4, that's where he tells you the essence from the lips of Jesus himself. What is Jesus' life and ministry all about? This is what Jesus says in his first sermon. And this is to give us an indication of the ministry we are to continue on. This is what Jesus says. He steps into the synagogue. He loves his people. He wants to minister to his people. Remember, Paul, Paul Jewish Paul, said in the beginning of Romans that the gospel is for the Jew first and also for the Greek. There is a priority here. And so Jesus carried out that priority in his earthly ministry. He shows up at the synagogue, and in his first sermon, he grabs the Isaiah scroll, and then this is what he says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. That sounds like liberation theology, Jesus. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is what's embedded in that first verse. To continue the ministry of Jesus is to take up this work. It's word and deed. Not one or the other. That's fallen off into the ditch on one side. All word, no deed, in the ditch, no good. All deed, no word, in the ditch, no good. Word and deed, that's gospel ministry. And that is the ministry we are to continue. We care about whole people. We don't treat them like brains on a stick. And so long as we give them the gospel information, we're content to let them suffer through physical circumstances. Nah, that's not what we see in the rest of the story of Acts. But we also don't see this, this prioritization of such engagement and social causes that the word of the gospel is left on the side, eventually being ignored. That we have seen both of these play out in American church cultures. And neither has produced the kind of fruit of mission that we see developing in the book of Acts. That's what we want to see. In his resurrection and ascension, Jesus is being enthroned as Israel's Messiah and the king over all creation. But the church has work to do in between the initiation of that kingdom and the consummation of that kingdom. Okay? And that work, central to that work is witness. Let's talk about witness. In the first century, when a new king came on the scene, when a new king was enthroned, the authority of that king was put into effect by heralds. Heralds who took that news broadly to all those who would be under the rule of the new king. They were called to announce a new king, a new rule, and to demand glad allegiance from grateful subjects. The problem with being a witness, though, 
is that it was not safe nor comfortable work. Repping that new king and his kingdom might get you killed. It's no accident that the Greek word behind your English translation for witness is where we get the word martyr. Martyr race is what he says. You will be my martyr race. Martyrs, my witnesses. That means to hold out the light and life of Christ unto your death, even if it requires your death. And you know what we see developing in the rest of the story of God's people? In AD 100, there were approximately 25,000 Christians in the world. 200 years later, there were 20 million. What accounts for that? The martyr race. So much so that the early church leaders used to say the blood of the martyrs is seed. It's the seed of the church. Because when they saw these people who would rather die than forsake Christ because they knew the hope of resurrection life, it began to get people's attention. It called for investigation and consideration. It eventually saw the Roman world flip. They were witnesses. You have to understand that the hostility that the church faced in the Roman Empire far exceeded anything that we see in the American Empire. This is the backdrop for our mission and our calling. We're not heralds of a nondescript spirituality or religious self-improvement. We are heralds of a king whose kingdom shall have no end because he is Lord of all. The first heralds of the gospel were eyewitnesses who could say that which we have seen and heard we declare to you, 1 John. They were well aware that God's story could and would be rejected and that only the Spirit of God could bring people to believe this truth. But listen to me, this is important. They did not then conclude that the truth of the gospel was a private matter for the individual. I'm going to say that again. I don't think y'all heard that. <laughs> they knew that people would reject the message of the gospel. But they did not draw the conclusion from that understanding that the gospel was a private matter. It's just about my personal faith. And you have facts and you have values. That's enlightenment categories. And that's a false dichotomy. A, a false dichotomy that was given to us from the enlightenment. They maintained that the message that had been entrusted to them was one that concerned the destiny of the whole human race. The one who had died and risen again was the king, savior, and judge of the world. The news was a vital concern to every human being. It was public truth. Public truth. Fidelity required the staggering decision to withhold acknowledgement of the Roman emperor as supreme lord. That was very dangerous for them. They confronted the empire every time they declared Jesus is Lord. Because that's what Caesar claimed. So what we see is the church is in direct conflict with the powers of the day. 
Do we just concede to those powers and make nice and play and blend in? No. <laughs> that is not being a witness. It's from this point that we need to be clear, though, about witness. To affirm the gospel as public truth is not to flex dominance, but to welcome dialogue. It's not to flex dominance and to take over. It's to welcome dialogue. Are you convinced? of the resurrection, Christian? Do you know that that's the solid ground on which we stand? Then why do you have any need to fear identifying as a Christian and engaging in conversation with your neighbors because they're very bold with what they believe. They're very bold with their convictions. We believe in the one who got up out the grave and put death to death. And we should be shy about that? We should be scared and timid with that? No. But we're also not arrogant with it. We're not jerks with it. We don't blast people with it. But we need to be engaging with them. Oh, that's interesting. I anchor my life in the resurrection. What anchors yours? Success? Achievement? Then what? You see, the dialogue that we have with our neighbors, for us, we ground it in the certainty of the resurrection and in the coherence of the Christian faith. We see the Christian faith as the story that makes sense of any story. There's no better story that accounts for the world as it is and the world as we would like it to be. The deep longing in our hearts for a world that is just. Only the Christian story makes sense of that. Not only why it is, but how it can be, how it will be. We're not inviting people to a blind faith or to take a leap of faith. No, that's called fideism. We don't hold that, okay? We're inviting people into the story that finds the incarnate, crucified, resurrected, and ascended Jesus at its center. That's where we're inviting them into. We're inviting them into the story of God with Christ at the center. Not blind leaps of faith. A new friend of mine who is a pastor theologian named Joey Sherrard put it this way. Quote, it is in the person of Jesus Christ that our preconceptions about reality are confronted and reconstructed. It is the person of Jesus Christ who requires the re-schematization of our minds as his holiness and reality press upon us. The question of the identity of the church and the nature of its mission is only answerable with reference to the identity of Jesus Christ, the risen one. And look at how the witness will go forward. If you just think about the, the transition between Luke and Acts, how is this going to go forward? It's going to go forward through Embracing a new way of interpreting scripture, Luke 24. All of the scriptures bear witness to Jesus and his gospel, his death and resurrection. It's going to come by embracing a new kind of community. Because what Jesus calls them to in verse 8 is not something that felt very comfortable to them. It was completely disorienting. Jerusalem, yes, hometown. 
Judea, yes, to the Jew first. To Samaria, to the ends of the earth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. This is where he's going to send them, and they're like, oh, word? Okay, Jesus, we want to see how this goes down. And we're going to follow that story. But it becomes a new kind of community, a cross-cultural community. But it also comes through embracing a new vision for the world, not just the land of Israel, but God's glory covering the earth as the waters do the sea. The paradigm in the Old Testament was come and see. The paradigm in the New Testament is go and tell. Right? We, as the church, don't sit back and wait for people to just show up in our building. We're supposed to be the kind of community that's out there loving people with such integrity, authenticity, fullness, and fidelity that it prompts them to ask questions to which the gospel is the answer. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? The, the work of the church is not to answer questions that our neighbors aren't asking. It's to live the life of faith in such a provoking way that our neighbors ask questions to which the gospel is the answer. And we get to bear witness. But before I close, we should talk about the significance of the ascension for mission. A lot of people think of the ascension as sort of like the exclamation point on the resurrection. But it's its own event and a significant one at that. What does, the what does the ascension do for the mission of God's people? How does it affirm us? First, it establishes Jesus as the reigning king over all powers in all ages. You can look at the first chapter of Ephesians for that. He's seated at the right hand of the Father above all powers, all dominion, all authorities, all the forces of darkness, all the pretended kings of this earth. That's why he's called the king of kings. Because everybody has to answer to him. The ascension gives us that. It also gives the church confident access to God's throne of grace. The Christ who loved us down here in his earthly ministry is the same Jesus who loves us as he sits at the right hand of the Father pleading our case. And not only that, the fact that he returned to the Father as a real human being, it shows us that he has, he has opened up a portal between heaven and earth so that we can have the hope of our humanity in its fullness make it in, into the presence and glory of God. Final thing I'll say is that it provides an advocate on earth whose presence is limitless. Now, this is where you got to put on your theology hat, okay? In the Upper Room Discourse, chapters 14 through 16 of the Gospel of John, Jesus says to his disciples, it's better for you if I go away. Because if I don't go away, then the, the, the comforter, the advocate, will not come to you. Now, that, that used to throw me off back in the day before I studied, you know, and trained for ministry. Like, how could it be better for Jesus to go away? Here's why. Because Jesus is a real human being. His humanity cannot be in all places at all times. It's sort of like, a, you know, I'm sure some of you might experience this. Your kids are playing sports. One kid has a game over here. The other kid has a game over here. You're going to have to go back and forth between games. You can't be in both places at the same time. The Spirit has no such limitations. And so it's better for the church because the Spirit is a present help to every Christian to help us in the work of mission, to empower and deploy us. And that's why it's such a big deal, what we're going to cover next week, Pentecost. 
But let me come to a close. A century ago, a band of brave souls known as one-way missionaries began to accept calls to go to places where the gospel had not been preached. And what they did is they would purchase one-way tickets and they would pack all of their belongings in their coffin. And they would go to their destination. And they were nearly confident that at that point they would never see their family again, never see their homes again, never see their friends again. But that didn't matter to them because they were going out on God's mission. And one of those missionaries was a cat named A.W. Milne. I think that Ian and Al might be distant relatives. So A.W. Milne was set to go to the new, uh, I think I'm going to say this right, the new Hebrides in the South Pacific. And he was going to minister to headhunters who he knew had killed every missionary that had come there before him. He got there. He was able to establish contact. He started playing the flute. They were like, all right, this dude's all right, right? He ministers to them for 35 years. And when he dies, the people of the tribe that he ministered to for 35 years buried him in the center of their village. And the epitaph that they put on his headstone was this. Before he came, there was no light. After he came, there was no darkness. That is our calling in this place. That we would live as a community in such a way that Northeast D.C. would have no darkness. To scatter the darkness of ignorance about the gospel, to scatter the darkness of loneliness and despair that stalks our streets, where 13-year-olds are being shot in our neighborhood. Our work, I'm not saying that we can magically wave a wand and make that kind of stuff disappear, but I'm saying we have our marching orders to do the work of tearing off corners of the darkness, pushing it back, shining the light of Christ, each and every one of us, every member a missionary. That's our calling. The missionary task is as coherent, broad, and deep as the needs of human life. You know that Jesus came to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. What we will see in Acts is the whole church bringing the whole gospel to the whole world. So let us find our part in that mission. Amen. Let's pray. for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.